Please take your Bibles and open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are this morning continuing our series in Timothy after having stepped away from it for just a couple of weeks, but we return to it now and we return to a section where Paul is going to be dealing with some important topics for us as a church, for all of God's people in all places. And we are this morning only going to look at the first couple of verses in chapter 5. In my initial uh, preparation, I had planned to handle all 16 verses. Uh, and better preachers than I have definitely been able to do that. But as I was meditating on these first couple of verses, there was so much here I realized I was not going to be able to do justice to, well, this and the entire passage. And so I shortened my text. My eyes were bigger than my stomach. You might say I shortened my text. And uh, my goal, my hope, my prayer for us has been that this will be instructive for us and that we will be confronted by it. I think this is a passage that we all need. This is a passage that has this week rung a bell for me in terms of it, as I've read and meditated upon it, there are times where I I felt like I was doing well in this, and I can see many examples where I have erred in a variety of ways and fallen short of where this text calls me to. I think any, any believer, as we do what this text is calling us to, we are going to find ourselves coming up short in some way. And so, What we have here, though, is a beautiful standard, a beautiful picture of how we as as believers are to handle conflict within our church. You know, we are wired differently. Some people are wired in a way that they love and enjoy conflict. Perhaps you know someone that you suspect enjoys conflict like that. There was a friend when we were living in South Carolina that he seemed to enjoy conflict a lot. Whenever there was an opportunity to debate or argue with someone, he always was at the head of that. And we would joke, what would this person do if there was a debate? What would this person do or say, all right, now we need to scale that back a little bit and make it more, uh, less, less aggressive. Most of us don't like conflict. Most of us would rather avoid it at the cost of everything. And what Paul is calling Timothy in particular as the pastor here, but as pastors and elders, though this is a particular passage that, that is especially uh, applicable to us, yet because pastors and elders are to lead by example, that this, by virtue of that, we are all then as Christians, all believers, are to be pursuing this, to be following in that example. This is a tough passage, but what Paul calls us to here in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is to be mindful of how we confront one another. We see in the example of Christ both of these. We, We see the example of Christ, the ability in him to to deal with conflict particularly, to deal with it aggressively. When we see, and we might remember him overturning the tables in the temple complex. That is Christ coming in, laying waste. And yet we see the way he deals with individuals. And his compassion, 
his gentleness, his mercy, even as he engages with a variety of people on a variety of subjects. We see this same example in the Apostle Paul. How there are times where there is called for a, a hard line to be drawn, and yet he so well, he shows us how to walk in love and compassion with those. And yet we also see failure in him, don't we? In the way that he interacts with Mark and Barnabas, wanting Mark to not be, he, Mark's no longer to be trusted on this other journey, and so let's cut Mark out. Only later does he recognize and, and see that Mark was to be a valuable contribution to the team. And he, we see his change of mind, his change of heart. These verses confront us. And I believe these verses are something that we in our world need. That is, they, the way that we in our country, the way that we in our time talk to one another, especially when there are points of disagreement, are often inflammatory, full of anger, full of disgust, full of condescension. And the way Paul addresses Timothy about how confrontation in particular is to be addressed within the church, and just these two verses, lays some important frameworks for us that is massively important for you and I to grasp. So before we dive into our study and read the text, would you join me in prayer, asking for the Lord's help this morning? Father, You have promised that your word, that you have sent it out and it will not return in vain, but it will indeed accomplish the thing to which you send it. In the context of that passage in Isaiah 55, the thing to which you send it may be to salvation, may be to judgment. And Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds today, that we would hear, that you would work in our hearts to that we may respond, that we may honor you in the way that we relate one to another. That the people of God, that we as a church might more clearly and brightly display your saving grace that you have shown to each one of us who have trusted in Christ Jesus. Work by your spirit today through your word in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Follow along as I read. We're just going to read the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all or in all purity. Two short, brief verses. And only a preacher could take such a short sentence and make it the subject for an entire sermon. But I'm going to do just that. This text where we are called, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. This, this, these two verbs, these two, this idea that in, 
it tells us that there is going to be the need for an ongoing correction within the church. Otherwise, there would be no need to tell Timothy, hey, when you confront someone, do not rebuke someone in this way, but do it in this way. There is this assumption underneath this text that within the local church, there is going to be an ongoing need for correction. We see it again and again. It is a a base assumption that you and I, all of us, will need this correction. Why? Why is it there? Well, we might say that we are finite creatures. We don't know everything. None of us are omniscient. You and I will never be omniscient. We are finite. We are limited. More than that, because we are finite creatures, we are fallible creatures, aren't we? We make mistakes. We get misled. We read something online, we read something in a book, and we, it, it, it resonates with us, we think it's true, only to find out later that it wasn't as true as we once thought. Things we thought, things we, ways we leaned, we need correction. We are finite, we are, we are prone to error. But it's not just that you and I are prone to error, it's not just that we are finite, infallible, it is that we are fallen creatures, are we not? We are sinners. We are sinners. Some of you this morning are not Christians, and we are delighted that you are here, thankful that you are present with us. But it would be helpful for you to understand that the way that the Scriptures diagnose the human condition isn't that you and I are generally okay. We might have a few problems, a few hang-ups, You know, if we go through enough therapy or enough counseling and take enough medicine, maybe we can eliminate those. The fundamental assumption, the fundamental statement throughout the scriptures that you and I are fundamental sinners. That is, through and through. We we want our own way. We live according to our own word. We do what we want when we want. This is how we live. All we like sheep, the Bible says in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Have it your way. Whatever it is in your heart, do it. Follow your heart. Live out your truth. Be your truth. Make your own journey. And yet, you and I again and again do exactly what we are not supposed to do. And even when we do what we ought to do, isn't it true? Can't you admit that even when you do something good, there is often a part of you that is doing it for selfish reasons? Look at me. Look at what I'm doing here. Isn't it praiseworthy? We do it for reasons that we hope to gain something. We want something from someone else. We do something for our spouse because we want them to notice because we want something from them. We do something, kids, you might do something for your parents because you're hoping to butter them up for later. Or maybe you're apologizing to them for something that you did already do. We are self-centered creatures. And it affects and affects everything. And you know, we know deep down how true this is. This is the fundamental assumption that you and I are sinners. 
The truth is, however, that just because we are sinners, if we have trusted in Christ, by the blood of Christ, we have been cleansed from sin's guilt. We have, through the death of Christ, we have been freed from sin's penalty, but we have also been freed from sin's power. That is, it no longer reigns over us, forcing us to do, we may now please God and and trust in him. And yet sin and foolishness still dwell within our hearts. As one old Puritan once wrote, we are still in Satan's land. That is, as much as we want to do good, we still find within our hearts and within the world around us pools, things that are pulling us to do what we we do not want to do. And even do the good things for reasons that are not entirely pure. The bottom line is this, that you and I will never outgrow our need for correction. And I want to know, is this something that you have wrestled with? Is that something that you yourself understand? And not just understand mentally, but that you are willing to receive. That you are never and will never outgrow your need for correction. When someone corrects you, is your first response to say something like, I know? I got it. I I know. Or when someone starts talking with you and starts correcting something you think, is your response different than that? Maybe it's you stop listening and you begin formulating all of your arguments in your mind. How am I going to respond? Mentally checked out, using that time to line up our arguments. This isn't just true of, of, of young men and women This is true of those who are older. One older pastor, now long dead, he commented on this passage saying this, that a special care is needed when correcting the elderly because they are not so easy to manage and are more ill-tempered. They think that they have lived long enough in this world to know what is right. And because of their age, they expect to be spared rebuke, even if they need it more than others. For when an older person is given to evil, it is much less tolerable than in the case of someone young. At any rate, when older people are chastised, they are not at all patient. It begs the question of what experience he was going through. What, what experiences he, had he had that led him to that conclusion? But the reality is, no matter whether we are young men and women, or whether we have matured in years, we will never outgrow our need for correction. Brothers and sisters, we must not be so proud. Listen to these passages from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man listens to advice. Or Proverbs twenty six twelve. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Or Proverbs sixteen twenty five. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Friend, brothers and sisters, we need correction. But all this text, all, all that is really just introductory. That, that was the, the, uh, the on-ramp for the rest of the sermon. That was just preparation for us to get going. Really, this text isn't about our need for correction. That's the assumption underneath it. 
The text is really about how you and I go about it. How we are to receive that correction. How, I'm sorry, how we are to deliver that correction. And while pastors are to be examples in this, this is to be something that is true of all of us. And so what we find is that these verses, these two verses, teach us, remind us, they press home the idea that you and I need to carefully measure our correction one of another. We need to measure that correction carefully. What I mean by that is some of you are, are cooks or you, you enjoy baking, and you know that a change in the ingredients at one time or another, the amount of the ingredients or putting them in at a different time than what the recipe calls for, all of that can change what you are making into something that is delicious and edible to something that might be edible but lacks the descriptor of delicious. Some of you work in the world of pharmaceuticals and medicine. And you know how one one difference in a batch of medication can change everything. One small element altered will change it all. Some of you work in some of you work with your hands, whether it is in uh, fixing cars and maintenance or others work in building and construction. And, and you know that when you are screwing a bolt in or you are trying to fasten something tightly, that you are to not fasten it so tightly that it can't be removed. It needs to be tight enough to fasten the two objects together, but not tight enough that the person behind you will never be able to dismantle it or fasten it so tight that it actually damages the things that you're trying to attach and fasten together. That is what this word rebuke carries. Do not rebuke. All throughout the New Testament, we are encouraged as Christians to rebuke one another when the opportunity, when the need arises. But here, this word rebuke isn't like those others. In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. It describes a, a sharp rebuke. It describes a, almost a verbal violence, a verbal abuse. It could be uh, destructive. It can be aimed at tearing down rather than building up. It would be characterized by condescension and arrogance and pride. Ultimately, it lacks respect. It approaches someone lacking respect for them. What Timothy is being warned against here and what you and I are being warned against is when the situation arises for us to correct one another, we are not to pompously look down on others while we correct them. Rather, we are to respect them in, we are to show respect in our correction. This is especially important for us to understand in recent years where we have seen numerous churches, church leaders in particular, who have lost their place of ministry due to what we might call spiritual abuse, abusive styles of leadership. And what Paul is calling us to is to use whatever influence and authority we may have with one another, not to crush 
not to abuse, not to manipulate, get our own way, not to force our will and our ideas upon someone else. Rather, it is to treat them with respect. And we see this in the next word. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him. Or you might translate, but encourage him. This is the idea of of patiently teaching, patiently explaining something to someone, appealing to them, admonishing them, urging them to evaluate their actions, their beliefs. In light of Scripture, it it is coming alongside someone. In fact, it is the same word connected here that is used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit as our paraclete, as our comforter, as the one who comes alongside us. So rather than belittling, Others, we are called to positively encourage, patiently come alongside to correct. For us to be able to do this, it's going to call, demand that you and I remember certain things. On one level, it is important for you and I to remember that this person that we are seeking to correct, they are made in the image of God. But the text, as It could have gone there, and certainly Paul is assuming that we understand that, that we are made in the image of God and that we share that, and so we dare not treat someone who is made in the image of God in such a way that would dishonor their creator. But more than that, do you notice the way he describes these people? That he describes one another within the church family. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. A younger man as, a brother, as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. These are family terms, aren't they? Here, the, the controlling idea that you and I are to have as we talk to one another is that we are a part of the family of Christ. That is this person with whom I am engaging, whom I, I want to see just in their view or just in their life. This person is a brother or a sister in Christ. This is someone who has trusted in Christ, and so they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is one that Christ loves and came and died for. This is one whom I, therefore, am called to love. Do you see how that changes everything? Typically, that's not how you and I, when confrontation, that's not how you and I approach things, is it? We tend to belittle others, to dehumanize them. We see that in a variety of ways. He doesn't say, he says, when, when you are confronting someone, you exhort them as a, an older man, as a father. Think of how young people today, young men and women, how older people are often described, how they are often referred to, how they are often demeaned. Okay, boomer. It's just old people. They don't get it. They're out of touch. They don't understand. You who are older, think of the way that you think and talk about those who are younger. These millennials, right? These these kids today, they just don't get it. That is one way that we dehumanize someone. And we reduce them down to something that we dislike about them. And we do this not just with age, but we can do this in a variety of ways. You are that. This is who you are. 
When Paul is trying to help us see that as we talk to one another, as we talk to other believers in Christ, the controlling mindset that you and I are to have is not that this person is opposed to me. The controlling idea that is to run under and shape the way we talk to one another is that this is someone whom Jesus loves and died for. This is someone with whom I will spend all eternity. This is a brother or sister in Christ. And do you notice the the language that he uses? Older men, we are to exhort as fathers, older women as mothers. And we would expect the opposite then to be true. Younger men and younger women were to treat them as sons and daughters. That would be the right image, right? Mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. They're, They're older than us, so they're Mothers and fathers, they're younger than us, sons and daughters, but he doesn't do that, does he? If they're younger than us, we are to view them as brothers and sisters. That changes it, doesn't it? A son or a daughter, that might, they don't know. They're young. They're not mature yet. They haven't gotten it. But what he calls for here, if you, the older you are, if they're older, if you are older, those who are younger than you, you are to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you don't have great relationship with your brothers and sisters. Maybe you are an only child. And so maybe this is a bit of an imaginative stretch for you. But here the picture is one of equality, of equal standing. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, those who are older be treated with respect Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. So what I have here is seven implications for us as a church. And if I have time, I have one more. I thought of it right as I was about to come up. Seven implications for us as a church. The first is this. If Paul is calling for believers to correct other believers, this means that we are required on some level to judge one another. Do you see that? You cannot rebuke someone without judging them in some way. Now, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That passage was once probably the well, most well-known passage. It's certainly, if you watch college football, it's still highlighted regularly by people in the stands with placards and the rest. But I think a more commonly known or referenced passage today isn't John 3.16, it's Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest you be judged. And so we, that, that passage gets quoted. How dare you look down on me? How dare you? You think you can rebuke or correct what I'm doing. Judge not lest you be judged. We're not supposed to judge one another. But that's not what Christ is calling for us there. Just a few verses on in Matthew chapter 7, Christ will teach and he says that we are to be wary of throwing our pearls before pigs. Not to waste our time with those who are just going to ignore it and trample on the truth and the treasures of God's word. 
But if you're not supposed to throw your pearls before pigs, you've got to make a judgment of who the pigs are. Here, we are not called to being judgmental, but we are called to be discerning. It's going to require some discernment, some correction, some judgment on our part. Following Jesus doesn't mean no judgment. It means loving correction. We as believers ought not only to expect this, we do need to invite it. Second implication is that Paul, as he is writing this to Timothy in particular, church leaders are called particularly to this work. Timothy is a pastor, the lead pastor of this church in Ephesus. And he himself is called to lead the way in this. It is not enough for a pastor or an elder to live a godly life, to teach, to preach, to counsel, to visit. They must also learn to correct one another well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you ought to expect that your elders and pastors are forced at times to correct people. That this is a part of what we do as believers. And for those of you who aspire to the office of elder and pastor, this is part of what you must learn. To do this well. So pray for wisdom to grow in this skill. This will mean that you have to fight the fear that is going to paralyze you and cripple you from doing what you are called to do. But it will also mean that you fight that arrogance and self-confidence that leads you to be the self-appointed policeman of everyone. Church leaders are called to this work, so we must learn to do this increasingly well. Third implication When you confront others, we must do it directly. We must do it directly. Do you see that implication from the text? Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men, you're going to rebuke them, or you're going to exhort them as brothers. You're going to exhort older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. This is This is directly to them. This isn't, I'm going to talk with everyone else about this issue, and then once it sinks in, once it creeps to them, then maybe we'll have a conversation with them. This isn't, I'm going to send them a series of passive-aggressive texts or emails. I'm not going to try to manipulate. It is to directly confront the issue. Exhort them directly. Fourth implication, when we confront others, truth is not the only consideration to our approach. It's not just truth. Our tone matters. Do you see that? Do not rebuke. Do not sharply rebuke. Do not abuse verbally. Do not speak down to someone. Rather, encourage, exhort, admonish, appeal. Be patient and loving in your correction. It's not just that we are to speak what is true, but how we speak what is true matters. In our world, there are those where the feelings of people are the only consideration that matters. And so tone 
is the only thing that really matters. Being nice and kind to others so that everyone gets along. That's, that's the only thing that matters. We set truth aside because that's going to upset people. They're not going to like that. We ignore that and we just worry about feelings and tone. And the other side, too often people treat, well, look, I spoke the truth. They just can't handle it. There's a bunch of snowflakes, can't endure it. Therefore, we just write them off. It's their problem, not mine. I was bold. I'm fighting for truth. Maybe you are fighting for truth. But maybe you're just a jerk. Paul takes a different approach. Paul says, do not rebuke in this way. Truth matters. But it's not just truth matters. It's how you do it. And if we want to win some, perhaps we ought to be more winsome. It's not that if we are so concerned about tone and so concerned about being winsome that we are going to gain a hearing and that we're going to be convinced the most people, friend, young people especially, you, you need to hear this, you need to recognize this. You can be the nicest person in the world, but be, if you speak truth, you will still be reviled and hated. Just because someone is reviled and hated does not mean that they have spoken truth in the wrong way. But we do need to understand that just because we have the truth or we know the truth or we are certain of what God says doesn't give us license then to rain it down on someone. How we speak the truth matters as much as that we speak the truth. Fifth implication. Because the way we correct others matters. We must think through how we can best approach others with what they need. Listen to these passages from Proverbs. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Proverbs 25, 15. With patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth pours out evil things. In Proverbs twelve eighteen, the words of the reckless, they, they pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Friend, because your words matter, not just truth, but the way you approach it and the way you convey it, because it matters, seek to convey and to speak that truth in a way that honors the Lord. It means you're going to have to plan and prepare And the more serious, the more critical something is, it sometimes means that you will want to spend more time planning and more time praying about it. Sixth, as I was sharing this, walking someone through this passage and my thoughts on it, someone in our church, they reminded me that for this to happen, for for what Paul is describing here to happen, Appeal, exhort older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters. For for that to happen that way is going to require cross-generational relationships. It's going to require us to have relationships with people that are different than us. 
Paul is not envisioning that strangers are confronting strangers within the local church, but that we are we are correcting those with whom we have relationships already. So whether you are older or young, let me encourage you to develop and foster relationships with others. Put yourself around other people that are different than you, whether in a different age bracket or have different interests. What we are being encouraged to do here will require far more than an acquaintance-level relationship. But it will mean that we actually show an interest in the person's life. What this is going to mean is that it, it demands that there is going to be real relationships within the church. That it becomes our responsibility, your responsibility as a church to make it difficult for people to be anonymous Christians within the church. That we take responsibility for each other to love and care one another. Finally, seventh implication, maintain appropriate and respectful relationships with everyone. You see, he ends this this sentence, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And then he adds this, with all purity. With all purity. Brothers and sisters, you are to relate to one another in a way that does not compromise your own or the other person's integrity. That it is to leave one another's purity intact and unquestioned and unquestionable by others. This is going to affect the way we talk to one another. This is going to affect the way we interact with each other. This will affect the way we hang out with each other. But to do and to operate this way, we are to have within our, our, to have within our, our grasp and our goal to treat one another, not only with all respect, but especially when there is a cross, uh, cross-gendered relationships that we are to treat one another in such a way that leaves one another's purity intact and unquestioned. And Timothy and elders are to lead the way in this. Brothers and sisters, let us walk together in ways that are appropriate and wise. Friends, we will not find examples for this in the world. The hope and foundation of this the hope and foundation for us to to love one another and walk together, to correct one another, the foundation for that is found only in Christ Jesus. To remember what he has done for us, how his blood has brought us together into the family of God through the adoption that is in Christ Jesus. May he empower us to live out these truths. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us grace, O Lord.
Give us grace. And thank you so much, Father, for your mercy on this church. How we see the evidences of this writ large in the lives and in the actions of so many. Thank you for the godly men and women who who lead the way in this. Father, I pray that you will give us the courage to speak up when when we feel pressure not to. And I pray, O oh Father, that you will give us not only courage, but that you will give us compassion and wisdom that we may approach one another in ways that, that honor your name, that glorify you and show respect one to another, for we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your work in us. Continue, O God, we pray in Christ's name, amen.